Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk about all kinds of things COVID-19 business related. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, my pleasure, Scott. And your thoughts on how we are slowly starting to see things gradually reopen. What are your thoughts on what you're seeing? Um, it's, it's, it's good that we're moving in that direction. Um, uh, for a couple of different reasons. One's um, uh, public health related and the other is economic related. Uh, the public health is, is that um, we've been very, very successful uh, or lucky or both at containing it. Um, you know, at one point there were forecasts of, I think it was 100,000 deaths, I think was I think was the forecast back a month and a half ago. Uh, we've had, I think, 3,000, 3,500 in the entire country. We have one of the lowest rates of mortalities uh, per 100,000, um, along with some other countries uh, in Europe. Um, and so there's no doubt that uh, the, um, the um, uh, you know, that we're not, uh, the, the risk has been, we've been able to contain the risk and that uh, vastly fewer people have um, have died as a consequence. I mean, when we were considering at one point, I think the high number was a hundred thousand, and then it was well, another number was twenty thousand. We're we're coming in well below that. Um, the second reason related to the first is that the numbers are showing over and over, as recently as Dr. Henry from BC yesterday showed, that it requires a risk-based approach that we are not all equally vulnerable. And this has been my criticism of our response across Canada, is, is that there's an implicit, nobody's actually said we're all equally vulnerable, but clearly in the lockdown of just about everybody and everything, we've implicitly suggested that everybody is equally vulnerable. And the stats have shown, we knew this actually before we did the lockdown from Europe, that the people who were vulnerable were overwhelmingly statistically uh, elderly people, older, older people, and people with serious health challenges who are under 65. People who were treated for cancer, respiratory problems, uh, kidney dialysis, uh, obesity, and so forth. And so it was not a disease that was an illness that was uh, hitting everybody equally across the board. And yesterday she reported, Dr. Henry, um, and I'm quoting this from memory from her press conference broadcast live on both CTV and CBC. It was, I think it was 89% of all the deaths in BC are in senior citizens homes. Yes, that's tragic, but it, 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 what I'm saying is that it is not uh, a risk across the, the society. And then the other figure she had was, I think it was 88 or 89% of all people with, that had serious problems with COVID had very serious underlying health problems. So that suggests that we need a targeted approach, not a shotgun approach where, you know, everybody is treated indiscriminately equally. Um, uh, and, and I'm hoping that this becomes the driver of the reopening of the economy. Let me, Scott, just very quickly put that into plain English. We know that retail, notwithstanding all the people wearing masks at retail, and I go shopping and I do not wear a mask because I've read the epidemiologist and the risk is essentially zero. Whereas going to a bar or a restaurant, if they were allowed to be open, is very high risk. A plane, very high risk. Because as, as the PD models have shown, and WHO agrees, the highest risk is where you have lots of people close together for an extended period of time, which WHO is defined as a minimum of 15 minutes. And so there's lots of activities that don't meet that. Going into a store, running in, buying something, running out. You're not sitting at a bar 
for two or three or four hours is not in the same risk as going to a restaurant or a bar or a music festival. So I'm hoping that they use that evidence-based data and use it to calculate the risk and then determine which activities will be opened. And we know that not all activities, as I've said, are equally risky. Uh, you know, seniors' homes are very high risk. Uh, hospitals, very high risk. Uh, the frontline workers. Um, bars, restaurants, music festivals, sports, sports events. Those should be off limits for the foreseeable future. Whereas uh, just about all retail, excepting bars and restaurants, uh, according to the risk-based, evidence-based data, can start to open uh, prudently, albeit with some social distancing measures in place. All right, I want to chat a bit about our relationship and the world's relationship with the business relationship with China. Uh, obviously, China has been charged now with uh, withholding information. Some are saying so they could have secured more supplies and more medical inventory from around the world and such. Uh, there, there's even uh, chatter from China today that this could uh, you know, escalate into an arms situation. Uh, there's lots of rhetoric floating around. Uh, at this time, but how will our relationship with China and our dependency on them and their supply chain, how is that going to change moving forward? I think it is going to change, um, but not <laughs> paradoxically because of that report. And, I, and, I, and as you know, I've always been, I think, more nuanced than most people on China, partly because I've been teaching there every year since 1997, which is a fair time ago almost a quarter of a century. And, and uh, no, I'm not on the payroll of any Chinese organization at all. I'm paid by Carlton when I go there to teach. Uh, but I'm, I think I have a much more nuanced understanding. That does not mean I'm an apologist. I have never denied, in fact, I've been one of the first to say that China is an authoritarian regime that violates human rights on a routine, regular basis. So I am going in with my eyes wide open. At the same time, I do not see China as an evil monster, as some uh, critics uh, argue. They are certainly authoritarian. Uh, they do not respect rule of law. They're not a democracy. I don't have any doubts that they suppress the information. Uh, whether they suppressed it to tr so they could try and, you know, obtain all the uh, protective equipment, or because authoritarian governments are notorious for suppressing bad news because they want to portray themselves as Mr. Wonderful, as, as the wonderful government that has no problems, they solve all problems. I think it's probably the latter, uh, because they have a, a tendency to lie on a regular basis about most things, anything that's negative about their regime. Um, so, having said that, now I'm going to address your question very quickly on the supply chain. I think it's going to change not because of the suppression of information about the COVID virus. I think it's going to change because... The, um, the world economy, and I mean by that the Western countries, that China's been selling to. China became essentially de facto a sole source supplier to the wealthy countries, the OECD countries, meaning European mm -hmm. countries, Canada, and U.S. And we bought an awful lot of stuff from them, everything from textiles to all the inexpensive stuff you see at Walmart or Canadian Tire, you know, rakes, shovel, plastic shovels, etc., etc. Chances are very, very good that it came from China. And we bought some pharmaceuticals and sole sourced them and, uh, and some uh, machines, too. It wasn't just, just cheap plastic stuff. And what's happened in the last eight weeks, and I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of op-eds in multiple sources, from left-wing media to right-wing media to in between, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, etc. And there's an increasing consensus, Scott. I think it's very fair to say there's an increasing consensus. You don't have to be any kind of a Trumpian 
Uh, yeah. to, in fact, there's many who are Trump haters who are saying this, uh, who have said, look, we became way over-dependent on China, and this put us at high risk or increased risk, and we've got to correct this mistake. And you're seeing lots of companies talking very publicly about recalibrating their supply chain. You see here government leaders and politicians talking about this. And I think over the next 24 to 36 months, you just don't change it on a dime. You don't close down a factory the morning after. It takes time to set up a new factory and wherever you're going. But I think they'll move quite quickly. Business will move quickly. It's in their self-interest. And over the next 24 to 36 months, I think you're going to see a significant pullback not a closing down of every last living, breathing factory that's owned by a Western company, but you're going to see a very significant pullback of supply chain sourcing from China. Not because we hate the Chinese, we don't. Not because we think they're bad or evil, we don't. At least I hope we don't. Uh, but because we've determined that the risk is too great, especially on things like pharmaceuticals and medical protective equipment. We can't be sole sourcing to a, a regime that where we have a... Uh, if not a hostile relationship, a very up-and-down relationship. And so we're going to go, the new word is going to be diversification of the supply chain. And it won't all come back to Canada for those who are nationalists who don't believe in any trade. No. Some will come back to Canada, some will come back to the States, some will go to Mexico, some may go to Indonesia, some may go to Brazil. But it's going to be multiple sourcing will be the new buzzword. Diversification of supply chain will be the new buzzword. And, and so I think that that is going to change the relationship because China, we're going to be somewhat less dependent on China. And as a source, we'll be probably as dependent or more for exporting things like fruit and vegetables and meat and pork and so forth. But I think we're going to become a lot less dependent. And this is going to create problems for China because their astronomical growth from 1993 until now, I think, and I'm talking 6, 8, 9% a year GDP growth, I think that that is now going to be a thing of the past for China. And that's going to create some very, very serious problems for the Chinese Communist Party because their their ability to be the dominant uh, monopoly political party was based on a deal with the Chinese people, a social contract, really. We'll deliver you lots of growth and lots of jobs and lots of a good standard of living, and in return you accept the fact that we tell you how to think and what to do. And that social contract mm. could... Um, increasingly be seen as being violated by many ordinary people in China, which will call into question the legitimacy of the Chinese regime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. How careful do we have to be to not let Donald Trump muddy the waters? And by that, I mean, obviously, he's taken different shots at China. Uh, yeah. Some are saying to cover up his own lax yeah. Yeah. Uh, preparation for all of this. Uh, w- will it get to the point if all of a sudden Donald Trump, you know, lands on the truth that the rest of the world won't believe it because Donald Trump is saying it and we're tired of listening to the president that cries wolf? Um, I'm going to give a different answer than that, okay? I'm not disagreeing at all. I'm just I'm going to come up with alternative uh, scenario or theory. Uh, first off, there's the election itself, and I think increasingly, because uh, the polls are showing this, he's down for the first time in a significant way. I think it's 50-50 at most he's going to be reelected. At least that's my view. And uh, if, if um, Mr. Biden chooses very wisely and doesn't listen to the radical left inside the Democratic Party and choose Elizabeth Warren, but chooses a very mainstream, moderate, centrist American like Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, uh, I think he could very easily beat uh, Trump. So Trump will be gone if that scenario is correct. He'll be gone in November and the problem goes away. 
even if he remains, let's say he is reelected in November. Let me put forward the second scenario. And and I've read over the years, just because I find this fascinating stuff, I've read there are people in the States whose specialization, they're called presidential scholars, and all they do is study the presidency. And they write books on the presidency, comparing one presidency to another. And I think it's fair to say there's a consensus amongst uh, presidential historians of the last uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 years that the second term of a president who is reelected to two terms is typically very different from the first term. And that's because the president in the second term, because he's term limited, and I say he because it's always been a man, uh, is term limited by law, by the Constitution, to two terms. They start to think about that magic word called legacy. And when you start to think about your legacy, which means how history will think about you long after you're dead in the ground, then that really grabs your attention and you start to act. Second term presidents tend to act much more presidentially, much more presidential. And I know this will sound far fetched to a lot of people who hate and loathe and despise Trump. If he is reelected, I am suggesting he won't be as wacko crazy, if I can use very colloquial English. I think he'll be more down to earth, more grounded, less. Uh, offensive, less uh, disgusting, <laughs> less mm. insulting. I think he will be a different person if he wins the presidency, and I think it's only 50-50 at this point. All right, something completely different. I'm trying to run through as many issues as yeah. I can here while I've got you, Ian. How is this going to change Canada's uh, energy industry? Uh, hearing reports today that Irving Oil, you know, massive operation uh, on the East Coast that brings in uh, hundreds of thousands of barrels a day from the Middle East. It's wanting Alberta oil, yeah. but obviously there's no Energy East pipeline for right. whatever reason, uh, politics and such. So instead, this stuff goes back and forth through cities on rail, rail car. Now they're talking about putting it in a ship in B.C., sending it down to the Panama Canal, through the Panama Canal, and then back up the East Coast. Is this ingenious thinking or just uh, an unbelievable reality that we found ourselves in? Um, ourselves you know, Scott, in. I am a, a fanatical empiricist. Uh, um, I don't so much rely on opinions of presidents and prime ministers and cabinet ministers because I don't trust them of any political party. I'm hard, hard numbers, stats can data or U.S. Census Bureau data, or empirical data that's reliable from Bloomberg. So now, with that little caveat, let me just say, this is just a little quick 30-second tutorial in uh, logistics and supply chain. The cheapest form way, and this is very hard empirical data, the cheapest way to ship oil is through a pipeline. The second cheapest way to ship oil is on a ship, on a tanker. And rail is a distant third, and trucks are just astronomical. You can do it, but it's astronomical. And so it may seem really crazy, and it is when you consider we should be doing it by pipeline. But if for some reason pipelines are blocked, they are, then it may seem really wild to ship it all the way down the coast through the Panama Canal and all the way up the other side of the coast of North America. Um, actually, from I haven't seen the numbers, the actual numbers of that trip, that proposed tanker trip, but clearly somebody has crunched the numbers and Irving Oil. They've got some smart people in head office that are finance types and accounting types. They've crunched the numbers. And they have concluded that they can ship it cheaper, uh, going by tanker from the west coast down across and up back up, than uh, through uh, it's by rail. Than by rail, if that's even possible. And they're looking at the Middle East and seeing that it's more and more unreliable. And um, so they're saying maybe, for all we know, because Irving, let's be clear, and there's no conspiracy here, but they've always had a very long historical close relationship with the Liberal Party. 
um, as he, senior decision makers in the Liberal Party. I cannot believe that they just dreamed this up out of their little lonesome one night over a napkin and said, yeah, let's spin this out to the media. You can bet that they have discussed this, at least in preliminary, very big picture terms, with uh, senior public servants uh, in uh, Natural Resources Canada, as well as the Liberal government and um, at the senior levels of the Liberal government. And maybe this is to put pressure on Mr. Legault. I don't know. Maybe that's the ploy. Or maybe it really is so they can run on a Captain Canada-type campaign. They're already, I'm sure, developing their campaign for re-election. Every prudent government does. They're a minority government. We all agree that they typically only last two years. And uh, we're coming up one year on the, on the minority government. So they may be already planning their campaign strategy, which will have many strands and many dimensions. And one of them is, we've already heard them, We've got to look at sourcing more things in Canada because Canada is more reliable. We've got to stop sourcing from China. Well, the moment you start saying that in a campaign, the opposition party is going to say, well, then how come you're buying oil from Saudi Arabia? And they've got to protect that their, their flank strategically from the attack, which will legitimately be made. My goodness, it's already been made. I mean, the conservatives have already said, what on earth are you doing buying oil? Are we buying oil from this vicious regime that assassinates uh, journalists? Um, you know, and, and so the, the criticism is already out there. And so I'm guessing that maybe the liberals are saying, gee whiz, we can kill two birds with one stone. We can reduce our dependence, eliminate our dependence on some of these odious regimes in the Middle East with odious human rights records where they murder people indiscriminately. And we can buy Alberta oil. I mean, but how do you, if you're cooper. the prime minister, if you're the prime minister, Ian, how do you square this circle to the public? How do you explain that it's more environmentally uh, safe and friendly to ship a tanker down to the Panama Canal and up the yeah. other side than building a pipeline? That's you, just insane. You wrap yourself, I'm not being funny, I'm being very honest with you, you wrap yep. yourself in the Canadian flag and you say uh, leadership is about uh, making tough decisions and trade-offs and it's very helpful, we've got to save Alberta. Uh, and Alberta's dying, you know. Because but what about what about saying, "Hey, this is a great idea, but this one is way better, and it's called a pipeline." Um, I am agreeing in agreement with you completely. I've always supported Energy East. The problem is public opinion in Quebec does not. And Mr. Trudeau has made it crystal clear he is not going to, quote, ram it down their throats, end quote, to use hmm. slang English, colloquial English. He's not going to force it on Quebec. He need, That's his base. He needs MPs from Quebec to get reelected. And so... That way, he can say to the environmentalists, look, I honored my commitment. I didn't support the Energy East pipeline. I, he can say to Quebec, I, I honored my commitment to you. I didn't wow. force Energy East on you. And, and he can say to Alberta, what do you mean I'm trying to hurt you guys? I'm going to be making sure your oil gets down to the, to the East Coast. Yes, we have to go through a, a rather circuitous route, but at least we're buying your oil. Now, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, uh, wow. Wow. And Seriously. look in the mirror at the same time. I'll be very surprised. Uh, Ian Lee's been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you for the discussion. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.